Hey, Bible Knots. You know, this episode's going to be a bit different than most of our other episodes since it will kind of act as uh, an interim episode. It's going to prime us for the coming episodes on the epistles. So it's mostly just a ton of information. <laughs> I find it super interesting, but I know that it's not everybody's cup of tea. So, hey, if it's not your thing, you know, I would encourage you to still listen along, stick around. But if you really don't want to, if you get super bored, just so you know, next week... We should be back to our usual story-driven method. Now, I know I should have started off by saying something way more interesting than what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to start this episode by saying how the epistles, or the letters, are organized because it's one of the first fun facts I ever learned about the epistles. So, they're arranged, actually, in a really logical order from longest to shortest. Go figure. And then Hebrews, which is long and anonymous, the longest of the non-Pauline letters, and then it's James, and then Peter's letters, John's letters, and Jude, which is the shortest of the non-Pauline letters. So they're all just arranged, longest to shortest. <laughs> just so you know, the epistles are a series of letters found in the last um, quarter of your Bible. There are 21 of them, and they make up 77% of the New Testament, which is a lot of the New Testament. 13 of these letters, 13 of the 21, are attributed to the Apostle Paul. Now, I should say that the epistles are historically difficult to interpret, and to understand why, we need to understand the entirety of the Christian tradition. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not going to go through it all. What we need to know is that the Christian tradition and the Bible itself, they both claim that the Bible are the very words, the thoughts, the ideas, the plan of the God of the universe. So if we were to believe this, which not everyone does, you know, it'd be easier if you played along, but I get it, not everyone believes this. But if we believed this, then it would stand a reason that interpreting the Bible accurately would be the wise thing to do. And by association, interpreting the letters would be the wise thing to do. And by accurate, by the way, I mean interpreting the Bible, interpreting the letters as close to the intended meaning of a given passage as possible. The unfortunate thing about this is that the epistles are really hard to interpret. And here's why. The church has historically interpreted the Bible in several ways. Some have proven to be more faithful than others, but it, it would seem that to stand the test of biblical interpretation, you really you need two main ingredients. The first is a robust grasp on the literary context of a given passage. You know what comes before, if you know what comes after, you're right on the mark of knowing what a passage is trying to say. For example, if there were say, a psalm, that were removed from its chronological context, then the ability to put that psalm back into the context in which it was written will likely get you closer to a more responsible interpretation than not doing that. Which is exactly why biblical scholars and interpreters will put the headings at the top of the psalms. The literary context also involves noticing when phrases are repeated throughout the whole biblical narrative or a book. Like, for example, the word grasp. It appears in Colossians a lot, and it's a direct reference to when Eve grasps the fruit of the tree of knowing good and bad. Same word. Another way that the literary context is important is allowing the Bible and allowing specific letters and books to define terms for itself. We do have the ability to put individual verses of the epistles into their literary context, but I should note that it is really difficult to put whole books into their literary context. We basically have nothing to go off of, except for the book of Acts. We can think of the book of Acts like the main series of a television show, so, I don't know, Cheers? The epistles are just spin-offs of the TV show, so Frasier. <laughs> You know, we have very little narrative to contextualize the letters into, except that which is found in the book of Acts. So if you want to know more about the Ephesians, you go to Acts, where Paul visits Ephesus. 
The letters of the biblical authors would be more accurately thought of as, like, essays, so they're all trying to persuade the audience to think like the authors are thinking. And I, and I do say the authors very purposefully, because it was most likely a team of writers that wrote each letter. But all of this means that it's crucial to know what comes around a verse in order to interpret it, otherwise you're not following the flow of thought that has been set out for you by the author. For example, it is impossible, as history has proven, to interpret Romans 13.1, that all Christians need to be subject to governing authorities, without a careful reading of Romans chapters 1-12, through 12, especially chapter 12, where Paul outlines that governing authorities ought to be Christian, and then he shows us what it looks like for a Christian to be living out his or her faith. The second ingredient to good biblical interpretation is a foundational understanding of the historical context of a given passage. What is going on in the historical world at that time will give great insight and clues as to what a passage might be saying. This is particularly useful in, say, the prophets. To know that Tyre, for example, was a massive trading port city would shed a lot of light on a great deal of obscure passages in Ezekiel and elsewhere. It's very important to know the historical context when we crack open the epistles at the end of the biblical narrative. So, we have to look at the historical context. The historical context is what we really need to focus on, and, and it has been being pieced together by historians for, for centuries. But other than that, we really have very little else to go off of. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, this all sounds really, really complicated, that's all right. Because it makes our job as readers, separated from these letters 2,000 years later, all the more difficult. But certainly not impossible. Another way to say all of this is that in order to understand what any verse or any passage in the epistles is actually saying and how it actually applies to our life, then we must know the historical context of that letter. And this sounds great and simple and all, but let me just give you some examples, and, and I'll show you just how crazy the historical context will change the meaning of a given passage. For now, let me just ask you this quick question. Think of this like a litmus test for knowing how to interpret a letter in the Bible. What is the historical context for the Corinthian letters? Why did Paul write it? Do you know what kind of culture a Corinthian lived in? Was it chaste? Was it loose? What was their number one export, for example? You see, the answer to all of these questions will ruin all of your favorite Bible passages from this book. So, with that being said, this is Bible Unbound. Let's explore. But I do want to preface this entire section of this episode by saying, like, I mean, we're going to be taking a look at some controversial passages. And, and I don't want you to look at them as controversial, though. You know, I want you to see these passages as passages in the Bible of which we will then be looking at the historical context and just marrying the two ideas. Also, because we're talking about Corinth, and if you know anything about Corinth, then you should know, then I should say that we might be getting into some dicey topics, so if you have kids around, maybe listen to it first. For example, 
Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 14. And yeah, that's the passage where Paul says women shouldn't talk in the church. And if your church tradition holds this doctrine really, really close to their statement of faith, or, or if you want to type out a really long, heated review about why I'm a heretic because I didn't talk about this passage or that other passage, let's, let's, let's just all, let's everybody calm down, okay? Let's take a deep breath. While you're at it, consider reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. But that's neither here nor there. The, the passage that Paul writes reads like this. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, to say nothing of the literary context, which should at least begin to make us question the face value reading of this passage, let's consider the historical context of the Corinthian church, shall we? If you were to visit Corinth today, you would see a large plot of land, maybe 20, 50 acres. It sits at the base of a fantastic precipice that shoots into the air. This is the Corinthian Acropolis. Stand back a few hundred yards, crane your neck up to the top of that Acropolis, and what you will see are several stone structures that wind their way up the side of this mountain. Each and every one of these corridors was, in Paul's day, a massive, huge, kids-cover-your-ears brothel that, to some lucky worshiper, held the most beautiful prostitutes in the ancient world. I mean, seriously, people came from all over the known world to Corinth for this very reason, to worship at the feet of a fertility god. And for the right price, you could engage some of these prostitutes in some intimate pleasures of your own. Corinth was widely regarded as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. In fact, Corinthians were so promiscuous that to be called a Corinthian was to be called a person addicted to these intimate interactions. So when Paul plants the church in Corinth on a second missionary journey, he causes quite the stir in the town, as you can imagine. And eventually he leaves, and in his wake, he, there's a handful of followers who remain behind to build up the church. And they all begin to warn against this sexual idolatry. But, of course, this means that the, as the church grows, less and less people go up to the temple at the top of the hill. And so eventually, the women come down from the hill and into the city. This would be fine normally if they didn't begin to enter into the church that was established there. And while in the church, Corinthian tradition has it at least, the prostitutes would coerce the men back up with them to the hill. And this divided the church in Corinth. Even though this is tradition, this is not that far of a stretch to assume, since the Corinthian church had tons of problems with idolatry, sexual promiscuity, I mean, we could see that in the letter. But even if none of that was true, if none of that was true, women in the ancient world weren't allowed to read anyway, and so by association, they couldn't interpret the Old Testament. And since the New Testament church allowed women to be a part of the assembly, and the assembly time, unlike today's church, consisted just of random people standing up to read and interpret the Old Testament through the person of Jesus Christ, then it's also more than likely that the pagan Gentile women that did end up repenting of their prostitution and joining the church shouldn't begin to interpret the passages of scripture right away anyway, simply for the sake of wisdom. Paul is saying that they should grow in their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures before they stand up and speak in the church. At the end of the day, though, I guess we don't know with 100% accuracy what Paul is intending here, but we can begin to see that with the historical context in mind, we can at least piece together an accurate interpretation of the passage and thus a more 
accurate application of the passage. Next, let's talk about a less controversial passage. It's one that often gets misunderstood due to a lack of historical context, but I think it's really beautiful. That's the Colossian Church. The letter to the Colossians is an extremely pastoral letter. Paul is encouraging this scrappy church not to lose heart after many of them have forgotten the gospel message that was preached to them by Epaphras. They're still attending the church that was planted, but Paul has heard rumors that their theology has become sown with both legalism and asceticism. Legalism is the idea that you must work your way through the Old Testament law to be saved, and asceticism is the idea that you must deny yourself, deny your desires, deny your physical being to be saved. But both negate the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You see, within the Colossian church, there were Messianic Jewish leaders who had come, presumably from Jerusalem, and have begun to claim that you must be circumcised in order to be a Christ follower. Given that the Colossians are, one, Greek, and two, grown men, this must have been quite an ordeal. Also considering their Greek heritage, they would have assumed that Jesus was a god among a pantheon of gods and not the one true creator god incarnate on earth. So they began to deny themselves as a sort of sacrifice since they lacked a traditional temple to go to. This makes Paul write this heartwarming letter, and it strongly advises the Colossian church to rest in the forgiveness that's found only in the saving work of Jesus. This understanding completely changed my mind of Colossians 3, which I'm not going to read here for time's sake, but if you do have time later, today, you should definitely go read Colossians 3 in the NASB translation and just see the pastoral beauty within the rest, within the saving work of Jesus Christ. But speaking of a works-based righteousness, I have found that the historical context for the book of James has also radically shaped my understanding of the book. You see, an infamous passage in James comes in chapter 2 when James writes, what use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. But you don't give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith, also, if it has no works, is dead by itself. This just seems like a direct contradiction of all of Paul's, Peter's, and John's writings. <laughs> but I think it is crucial to know this. James is the first epistle that we have that was ever written. It was written around 49 AD. It was just a staggering 15 years after Jesus ascends into heaven. He's writing to a handful of 12 pastors that have all been scattered abroad due to the persecution that had come up in Jerusalem after Stephen was martyred. And, and these pastors, they, they were so fearful, so full of fear, that they scattered all around Asia Minor, which was a few thousand miles to the north of Israel. James's letter to them is the strong, loving words of a leader to a group of his brothers on the brink of apostasy. And they are ready and willing to give up their faith for a variety of reasons, but they haven't yet given up their faith because they are the leaders of the churches in Asia Minor. James is, in his most loving and exhortative way, saying to stay strong in the forgiveness that they've found in Christ. These Jerusalem leaders are also, by the way, very Jewish, so they know the scriptures well. And when James says, can that faith save him, the historical and literary context would have it mean that he means that literally. Like, can a faith that doesn't believe in God save a person? Can a faith that doesn't understand the gospel save someone? The answer is almost comically no, because James is being tongue-in-cheek here. James says that a faith that doesn't believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ is not actually a faith at all. 
And in some sense, he is being curt with them. He's saying that if they have a, quote, faith that doesn't believe that Jesus reconciled them back to the Godhead, then they need to seriously sit down and reconsider what they're doing with their life. Okay, shameless plug, if you're actually really interested in James, check out our entire video series on James on YouTube. (laughs) But until then, let me just end by saying this. I am super excited to go through the epistles with you all. This is where I think the Bible really becomes practical for us. And when we begin to understand the epistles, it's like we get superhero powers in reading the Bible. We get to know more about ourselves and God. Okay, last thing. Have I ever told you about Bon Cafe? (laughs) It's an amazing coffee company where when you buy a 10-ounce bag of coffee, it goes to support an orphaned girl's home in Haiti that they run. But now, when you use discount code UNBOUND at checkout, you will automatically also support Bible Unbound's mission as well. So, it's a, it's a total win-win. When you buy a bag of coffee from Bon Cafe, you support an awesome mission in Haiti and an awesome mission in your ears. So, check out BonCafeHaiti.com. That's B-O-N-K-A-F-E-Haiti.com. B-O-N-K-A-F-E-Haiti.com. And use discount code UNBOUND at checkout. Link, of course, is in the show notes. Thanks so much. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next time, Bible Knots.